0: All right. well if you're new here today, we uh, welcome you, we are glad that you are here. Uh, My name is Frank and I'm the lead teaching pastor, probably 40 times a year you'll see me up here, Uh, otherwise you'll see uh, Sean Myers or uh, somebody else. And uh, before we get started, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 again today, but also we will be in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4 for a little bit of time uh, towards the end as well, so you can uh, just be looking forward to that. I want to remind you of a couple things happening uh, in our community again. Um, First of all, Christmas Eve, our Christmas Eve services are at 4.30 and 6. Both are candlelight services, uh, both are family services, so we just encourage you to bring everybody in here, and both services will be uh, a little under one hour long. So we tell you that so that you can kind of plan your evening. I know it's a busy time, but so 4.30 and 6. Second thing is I mentioned last week that uh, we would be Uh, Sort of starting to preview what's going on next year and got a lot of stuff happening a lot of really good stuff that we're excited about I want to mention that um, we'll be starting romans again on january 19th starting with romans chapter 8 But before that on the 5th, we're going to have a guest preacher come in. He's a friend of mine I've known this guy for about five years. We've become very good friends Um, the the guy is is really gospel centered loves jesus and has a, just really one of those incredible testimonies that I know will bless you guys. Every time I've brought him in to have him speak somewhere, people have walked away just tremendously blessed. And so I would encourage you to do everything you can to be here, uh, to hear this, this buddy of mine talk. His name is Dominic. He'll be here on January 5th. And then on January 12th, uh, it is the three-year anniversary of the creation of Redemption Church. If you're new to Redemption, Redemption Church is actually one church with seven congregations. Uh, And so we're going to be celebrating the anniversary of when the original four churches came together to to create uh, Redemption. And so that'll be a wonderful time to celebrate the new life of of Redemption Church. Uh, But also we are going to be doing, because we think this would be appropriate, we're also going to be doing baptisms on that day, on Anniversary Sunday. We thought that'd be a great day to celebrate the new life of new believers as well. And so those of you who have been asking, when is your next baptism service, it's going to be January 12th, so you can start making plans now. Please contact Stephanie Shoemate and let her know uh, that you uh, would like to get baptized and we'll get that all arranged for you. And for those of you that are a little worried about the water in January, understand that we do have a heater, so the water will be heated, we'll have towels for you, it'll be fine. In fact, most of you would rather be in the water in January, in, in the heated water than outside of the water. So we're doing all of that. Last thing I want to mention is, many of you are aware, for the last several weeks, we've been doing something redemption-wide. Now, redemption, when I say that, redemption-wide is six or 7,000 people, okay? Uh, Last six or seven, uh, last several weeks, we've been doing something redemption-wide called the Advent Project, uh, the Advent Poster Project, and you can see the results of some of these posters. We received literally hundreds of posters. And, um, last night they had the showing of them and they had the voting online. You could vote online and you could go down and vote uh, at the showing in person. And, uh, these are the top nine, uh, vote getting posters. We get to get them first because the elder, uh, the person who put this together, Sean Mortensen is an elder at Redemption Arcadia. So we're first in line in that regard. Uh, the very first, um, uh, framed item down there tells you kind of a little bit about the project, and then it and then it shows uh, the, the top nine posters. Uh, I want to say that we are really pleased to announce that the winner is actually somebody who is a part of Redemption Arcadia, and in fact, he's here this morning somewhere. Where There he is. Christoph Kaiser is the guy that won. His poster is down there at the end. Yeah, that's right. You bet. See, the competitive nature in me just loves that. Otherwise, it's a very spiritual thing that we did, but I mean, that's just... It, it really is awesome. It really talented people who entered this, uh, this, um, this project, and, and we celebrate that. So take some time to look at those uh, when we're done with uh, uh, the service. Let me pray, and then we will dive into our third week of, of this Advent series. God, we just pray that um, you would uh, open our eyes, open our hearts, that you would renew our minds through the gospel. God, that as we proclaim the gospel, we would celebrate and we would be called to it. And as we teach your word, that we would understand and that we would apply it to our lives. And God, please, as as always, I just pray that your words would be spoken through me, that I would be moved out of the way so that people only hear you by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this series is an Advent series. We're taking a break from Romans and we're spending four Sundays, the four Sundays before Christmas, in Advent. And then Christmas Eve as well will be in in, uh, Colossians uh, as well. Uh, And the idea is that that Advent is a time of joy. And so the title of, of the series is The Sounding Joy. But we get mixed up during Advent all the time because it's also a time that's very busy and we're worried and we increase our debt and we have too much to do and there are competing narratives for our attention and for what we think will fulfill us and what we think will deliver us from what we believe are the hells that we live in and we're here to present through this advent series an alternative narrative that is the true narrative the gospel narrative the the one that calls us to god through his son jesus christ one where we can celebrate true redemption true reconciliation and true unification with the lord god and so We are preaching this series and proclaiming it in order to create a longing uh, that we should have. Most of us have this longing, but we want to go deeper with this longing. And it's the longing for a Savior who is powerful enough to do all of the things that we're talking about in this series. The first week was, was that we're longing for a Savior who has more power than sin, which Jesus certainly does. And when we say sin, we're not talking necessarily about our behavior, although we do manifest sin in sinful behaviors, but what we're talking about is getting to the core of who we are, that we're fallen people, that we've been corrupted by original sin, and we are born into this world as sinners. Our nature is sinful, and therefore we're separated from God. And so Jesus is powerful enough to handle that. He's not just here to tell us how to modify our behavior or, or to improve our lives a little bit. He's here to completely reconstruct, recreate, re- rebirth our lives. We, last week, we talked about how Jesus is also a Savior who, who has a, a breadth and a depth uh, and, and, and a size that is as big and as pervasive and as comprehensive as sin. And we talked about how sin is, sin is so pervasive, it touches everything in the world. It doesn't just touch our souls, but it touches our relationships, and it touches creation, and it has corrupted everything. And everything, it touches, and it does touch Everything. Needs redemption and so Jesus is the only one big enough to be able to redeem uh, that way and and your intelligence and your worldview and your your feelings or 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 whatever you think is going to deliver you outside of Jesus just can't do the job it's not sustainable and, and then today we're going to talk about longing for a savior who is able to reconcile and unify all things and what that might look like and then next week we talk about a savior who is able to create a brand new community for us. And we're going to be looking at Revelation 21 and 22 uh, for that. Uh, but the, ba- the foundation for the series is found in this, this soaring paragraph in, in chapter 1 of Colossians. Uh, this paragraph talks about the absolute supremacy of Christ in all things. And so I'll reread the paragraph. David read it. I'll read it again. We should, we should be just knee-deep in this paragraph this, this entire month. But particularly today, listen to verse 17, because that's the one that, that really looks to this idea that Jesus is a Savior who can unify and reconcile all things. So Paul writes, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything, all things were created through him and for him. And here's verse 17. And he, Jesus, is before all things. In other words, he's eternal. He existed before anything else was brought into existence. And as a result, in him all things hold together. Because he's before everything, he's eternal. And because he created everything, he can hold all things together. He is the only one powerful enough to reconcile and unify all all things, to take the disintegration that we experience in this world and bring integrity to it, bring wholeness to it, bring harmony to it, to make things the way they're supposed to be, not the way they are now. And then it continues, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or supreme, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so one of the main uh, narratives that we're really going after and trying to talk about during this Advent season is the narrative of consumerism and materialism and that, that uh, consumerism is somehow going to deliver us from, from the hells that we think we live in. And please understand, we're not telling you to be anti-consumeristic or anti-material uh, uh, things. We're just saying that that, uh, that instead of consuming to live, we should quit living to consume. We're, we're not anti-material things, but we are anti-materialism, thinking that our salvation, our deliverance is going to come in the acquisition of more and more and more and more things. There was a video that somebody showed me on YouTube. Uh, it's it's a, a video, something about the cycle of things and garbage and all of that it's about a 20 minute video but in the middle of that video that 20 minute video is about a 1 minute section that really spoke to me about this idea of how consumerism is self perpetuating how no matter how much we acquire we always need more i talked last week about jim elliot's line where he says needs multiply as they are met the more we acquire the more we have to acquire and so consumerism is a self-perpetuating thing. And in the middle of this video was this one-minute section where it was animated, and it shows this guy, and I'm using the language of the video, understand, okay? So this guy comes home, plops down into his big easy chair in front of the television. He's been at work uh, uh, 10, 12, 14 hours, and he's exhausted, and now he's just going to sort of be entertained. The problem is, is that he's watching TV, and, and in between the four, five, six, or seven minutes of the program that he's watching, he's bombarded by 10 or 12 commercials. And every commercial has the exact same message for him. You suck. But we have all these products over here that you could acquire and then you wouldn't suck anymore. So get up out of your chair and go out and buy these products so that you don't suck. And so he gets up and he goes to the mall and he goes on a spending spree and he buys all this stuff so he doesn't suck anymore. But then the next morning he realizes, I have to go to work now so that I can pay for all of this stuff that I just bought because I suck and I don't want to suck. And then he gets home from another 10 or 12 or 14 hour day, plops himself down into the chair and guess what? He turns on his television and they tell him the exact same story. Hey, you still suck. You may have gotten that stuff over there, but now you need this stuff and this stuff. And there he goes. He gets up and he has to go back to the mall. That, that's just this vicious cycle of consumerism. And it's a lie that we suck because in the gospel, we are made complete and whole. And that's what fulfills. But we believe the lie. We believe the alternative narrative. We believe the lie that we are in this hell and that the functional savior is going to be the acquisition of all of this stuff that the mall gloriously gives to us. And so we go and worship at the altar of the shopping center. And that is not the way it's supposed to be. That's not how God designed us, the way we're supposed to be originally. It's not what he intended And again, I talked about this last week, but I'll say it again because it's so important to understand. Sin corrupts us without us even noticing. And I'm not talking about the areas where it's obvious in our life that sin has corrupted us. When we steal or lie or or commit adultery or whatever, those, those big sins that are obvious. I'm talking about how sin is so subtle that it corrupts even little things that we don't even give a second thought to. Like worry and consumerism and attitude and it corrupts us without even, with, with, us, with us not even noticing it. it. It's called the creeping ease of sin. We, we become desensitized to it, and we just begin to accept it. Uh, we have these, in redemption, we have these things called preaching collectives, and all the pastors, whether they're preaching or not, some of the worship leaders, they get together, and we, we talk about what we're going to preach on, and we, we exchange ideas, and talk about the texts and we had one big preaching collective. We usually meet every week, but we had one big one for this Advent series. We knocked it all out in one day. And when we were talking about this week three, uh, Jim Mullins, who's over at the Tempe uh, congregation, he said, let, let me take you through some exercises to help uh, us understand what we're trying to say during, during this particular message. And so I'm going to take you through the results of some of those exercises today. Here's the first one. He said, just for fun, maybe not so fun for some of us, but just for fun, let's reimagine a world put right. Let's reimagine a world that has been reconciled and unified perfectly by Jesus. Let, let's reimagine a world the way it's supposed to be. In fact, I'm pretty sure the inspiration for this came from an essay that all of us had re- uh, read by Cornelius Plantinga. Titled, Sin, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Let me read the opening couple of paragraphs for you that kind of set the stage for this idea of reimagining a world where things are put right. In the 1991 film Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam and tries to drive around it. He doesn't know where he's going, and he's alarmed to note that with each street, it gets darker and more deserted than the last. Then, the nightmare his fancy sports car stalls. He manages to call for a tow truck, but before it arrives, five local thugs surround his car and threaten him. Just in time, the tow truck shows up, and its driver, an earnest, genial man, played by Danny Glover, begins to hook up to the sports car. The thugs protest. The driver of the truck has interrupted their meal. So the driver takes the group leader aside and gives him a five-second introduction, I'm sorry, a five-sentence introduction to sin. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can, and that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. The driver's summary of the human predicament is just about perfect. He understands the way things are supposed to be. They are supposed to include friendly streets that are safe for strangers. They are supposed to include justice that fosters peace, mutual respect and goodwill, deliberate and widespread attention to the public good. Of course, things are not that way at all. So we went through this exercise, and certainly this exercise is not as deep as we could go. We could take every one of these things and go deeper for about an hour. But it's just an idea, the idea is just to kind of get us thinking about what it would look like in a world. Let's reimagine a world that's been put right. So what would neighborhoods look like well, we would live with each other in trust rather than suspicion. And, and I think gated communities would be a thing of the past. And, and no one, obviously, would lock their doors. And, and people would quit hiding behind remote-controlled garage doors and loud music. What would relationships look like? What would relationships look like? Well, nobody would ever unfriend another. There would be no more with them. What is that? W-I-I-F-M. What is it? Anybody? What's in it for me? There would be no more with them. That's the pedestrian way of saying what social scientists call the, the social exchange theory of relationships. Where everybody gets into a relationship, the reason we get into relationships is because we need to benefit from the relationship. We're going to give as little as possible, but we're going to get as much as we can. And if we ever reach that point where we're giving more than we're receiving, chances are we're going to break off that relationship. There would be no more social exchange theory, no more with them. Uh, uh, Tim Keller, in, in his book, King's Cross, describes it this way. People in a fallen and corrupt world, a world that is not reconciled and unified, what we try to do is we try to get everybody else to orbit around us, making us the center of the universe. But in a world that is reconciled and unified we begin to orbit around others. That's the idea. What would food look like? Now, I know, I know because I've had this conversation with some people. The first place some people go is, well, there would be no calories and there would be no negative consequence for overindulgence. But I would say, that's, that's good, but it's not redemptive. We're thinking too small when we say that. It's, it's not gospel-centered. I, Rather, if food were part of a unified, reconciled, and redeemed world, you and I would no longer hold food as an idol or as something to medicate ourselves against sin and guilt and depression and brokenness. Because those things would be gone and our desires would be changed. And one of my personal pet peeves about food and drugs, there would be no more need for secure packaging. You would no longer have to break into food or drugs in order to be able to eat and use them. You realize the only reason we have secure packaging on food and drugs, the only reason is because of sin. If we lived in a world that was reconciled and and unified, we wouldn't have to worry about that anymore. I was living in Chicago in 1981 when the famous Tylenol killer was on the loose. He was going around in in Walgreens and and Jewel Osco stores putting poison into the Tylenol uh, bottles. And from then on, packaging was changed. Sin did that to us. What would politics look like? I'll steal the comment of one author on this one and then I'll just move on. Here you go. Politicians would tell the truth, praise their opponents, and spend reasonably. Boom! I added the boom. (laughs) What would work look like? Imagine your workplace without sin. Imagine your workplace redeemed and reconciled and unified. Imagine an environment where the arrogant are humble and there are no hidden agendas. And here you go, think about this, and don't think in negative consequences like I'd be unemployed. Think about how wonderful this would be because there would be better employment available in other areas Some of you, your jobs would be eliminated if we lived in a world that was reconciled and and unified. Do you understand that? Think of all the jobs we wouldn't even need anymore. It would be awesome. What would family look like? We could spend hours on this. Well, you wouldn't need name tags at Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners, and the television would no longer be on the altar of the living room. What would singleness look like? I'm going to spend a little time on this one. And here's my proposal. Let's not talk about what singles should do in order to put singleness right. Let's not talk about that. Instead, let's talk about a culture where singleness would be valued differently than it is in our culture today. In other words, the onus for this one is on us married people. Now, this isn't to say that singles aren't sinless. They aren't. This isn't to say that all singles have a perfect... (coughs) world uh, biblical worldview they don't except for maybe Eugene and Stephanie but outside of them there are no perfect singles worldviews okay but in a Christian context where it seems like family and marriage is almost always valued above being single I would rather start there and understand I'm married so you married people you have to listen to me okay So singleness would be something that traditional Christian married people would respond warmly to rather than awkwardly or condescendingly or like, oh, I need to fix that or I need to fix them up. Christianmingle.com would go away. Not that I'm bothered by that. It's just it would, there wouldn't be any need for it. And the reason is because singles would find family in their local faith community and that faith community would respond appropriately. And if the singles decided that they wanted to find somebody to be married to in that faith community, they could do it without a lot of added tension. Singles would be seen as equals in all aspects of the faith community, and they would diligently attend and warmly, be warmly welcomed in all home groups, which is our version of the RCs, the redemption communities. And we would realize that no one is ever really single, at least, at least not in the way that it has mostly been defined. Rather, we're all in community, and it's one of the things that's actually displayed in the Bible where God uses single people, Jesus himself included. By the way, just over two years ago, the United States passed a demographic milestone. There are now more than 50% of adults in the United States single than married. So if you have a church that's only interested in going after married people with families, you're cutting out more than 50% of your mission field by doing that. And it's not the true gospel. And I know a lot of people, I I know this for a fact because I've had this conversation. People hear that, well, there's more singles now uh, than than married adults. People hear that and go, well, that's because of the brokenness of people and and, and sin. Yeah, I get that. And frankly, I don't care. The problem is is that it's a reality and the church needs to respond to that well and appropriately and in a gospel-centered way. Last one. What would sex look like? There would be no more pain associated with sex. Foolishness would be replaced by wisdom. We are so foolish about sex, yet we proclaim to be wise about sex. Here's one of the ways that we proclaim to be wise, you know, You should live with somebody before you get married to make sure that you're sexually compatible, so that so that your sexual compatibility doesn't become an issue and you get divorced because of it. So wise. Why is it then that every study ever done on this issue shows that the divorce rate is twice as high for people who live together before they get married as people who don't live together before they get married? Why is that? We think we're so wise. And yet we are so foolish when it comes to sex. Here's something else that would change. Our desires would be redeemed. Our sexual desires would be redeemed. Somebody said after the first service, so does that mean that porn gets redeemed? Pornography gets redeemed? (laughs) No. It doesn't get redeemed. It goes away. There's no longer a desire for it. Whatever, Whatever is pushing that desire is gone. So porn goes away. Another industry where jobs are lost. Here you go. Covenant would replace transactionalism. You ever stop and think about how much transactionalism drives our understanding of sex? Rather than covenant, which is what Christ calls us to. Our desire would be for wholeness and holiness and harmony and thoughtfulness and And there would be no more abortion. So what is the common denominator for why none of these things look this way now? It's sin. It's sin. It's, It's the parasitic nature of sin. Sin is a parasite. The Greek word for parasite literally means one who sits at someone else's table. Sin is always sitting at our table. And it's sitting at our table, sucking the life out of us, all the while telling us that it is the path to life. The problem is sin. And again, it's, it's the nature of sin that we, are, that we live with and are born with. It's not necessarily the behavior, but that is, although that's a problem. But in all of that, the nature, the behavior, we have a Savior who can redeem and reconcile and unify all of that. So... so so the question then becomes, how is, how is a reconciled and unified p- community experienced? And that's where we get into Ephesians 3 and 4. So turn to Ephesians. If you're in Colossians, it's just a few pages to your left. You go back through Philippians, and then you hit ph- uh, Ephesians. And we're starting at chapter 3, verse 14. And this passage that we're looking at, chapter 3, verse 14, through chapter 4, verse 6, starts as a prayer it starts as a prayer and ends with exhortation in the last 6 verses and frankly the prayer that paul prays in these last 8 verses of chapter 3 is an audacious prayer it's a big prayer in the midwest they say it's a honkin big prayer they use that modifier honkin all the time that means big okay It's, Paul is praying for a lot in this prayer. But that's what our faith calls us to. That's what our faith calls us to. Why do we pray such puny, tiny prayers? We should pray big prayers. Why don't we? I'll just speak autobiographically. When I don't pray big prayers, here's why I don't. This is a psychological nightmare but this is why I don't. I figure if I set the bar really low for God, He's not going to disappoint me. There's not a lot of faith in that practice, is there? I've had to learn the hard way, and by the hard way I mean by, by the way God gives me and shows me so much more that I could ever dare to ask for. I've had to learn the hard way that God doesn't want me to come to Him with a thimble and say, please fill my thimble. He wants me to bring a bucket, a big five-gallon bucket and not only is he going to fill that, but it's going to overflow. He wants us to bring him a bucket when we pray, And this, this prayer of Paul's is a bucket prayer. It's audacious. But it's also a legitimate description of the kind of community that we can have when things are redeemed, reconciled, and unified. So he starts by saying, for this reason. And the reason would be the gospel. The, the gospel is the fact that you and I are separated from God by our sin, our nature of sin. From the very beginning when we were born, we're separated from God by our sin. But in his love, God sent his son, Jesus, to be born, which we celebrate at Christmas, the first advent, to live the perfect life and to die the perfect sacrifice for our sin on our behalf so that we don't have to do that. And then he's raised from the dead to give us eternal life. But the fact that he's raised from the dead also promises that he's going to come again, the second advent, he's going to arrive again. And that's what we place our hope in, the the second arrival. So Paul says, for this reason, the reason of the gospel, I bow my knees before the Father and I take up to prayer. And I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let me stop there and unpack those first six verses. Verse 16, Paul talks about reconciliation. He's talking about a place where everything has been reconciled. And it's interesting the language he uses around this idea of things being reconciled. He talks about how How we are strengthened by reconciliation. Do you understand that when we are reconciled to God, when we come to Jesus Christ and we lay our lives before Him, we submit to Him, we admit our weaknesses and our deficiencies and we give them to Him, we are actually strengthened by that. It's amazing how many people I run into who aren't Christians, who will ridicule Christians and say, you're you're just weak people who need that crutch of Jesus Christ. Guilty! Guilty! I need the power of Christ. I need to be strengthened by Him and His Holy Spirit living in me. Reconciliation always strengthens. It never weakens. And it's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when things are reconciled, there is strength and power. And verse 17 tells us that faith is at the heart of this. Faith that Jesus is the creator of all things and so he has the power to reconcile and unify all things and that he's lavished us with his grace. He has overflowed our bucket with grace. He didn't give us a thimble full of grace. And he did that not because of our worthiness, but because he loves us. And so that faith allows for Christ to dwell in our our hearts, which Paul says roots and grounds us in love that that greek word root literally means to anchor and the greek word ground means to find a firm foundation so in christ's love we are anchored with a firm foundation and by that rooting and grounding we can then ascend to the knowledge the understanding of the totality of his love and he uses those words to describe the totality of his love that it's wider than anything that it's deeper than anything that it's higher than anything Its length never ends. Now, we never quite get to the full knowledge of God's love this side of heaven because finite minds can't handle it. We can't do it. But we always ascend a little bit further. We can learn more and more and more. But every time we think that we've attained it, I have an understanding of the full love of God through Jesus Christ. Here's what he does. He takes that one bucket away and he brings another bigger bucket and he fills that one. And he does something to awe us and marvel us in such a way that we say, I didn't know the totality of God's love yet. He just keeps bringing it. He just keeps keeps filling my bucket. And this love surpasses knowledge because we can't attain it. Until we are with Jesus. And and ultimately, Paul says, we're filled with the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? A lot of people read that verse there, verse 19, and, and think in terms of something that they're gaining, something they're getting, some way that they're profiting. But Paul's petition that we may be filled up with the fullness of God is actually a prayer that we would be content in God, that we would be satisfied in God. Not that we would lack ambition, but that we would look around and we'd say, I- I've done everything I'm supposed to do, and no matter what, I'm happy where I am, I'm happy with whom I am with, I'm happy with everything I have, and I'm happy with myself. I'm content. The only thing that brings satisfaction in our life is God, and that's what Paul says is how we are filled with the fullness of God, is to be content in Him. And again, it's a picture of Advent. Our longings are not supposed to be for wealth and power and fame, but, but rather for Jesus to arrive one last time to take us home. The fullness of God is the realization that, that, that God is the knowledge, that, that God is he's, he's more than any of the riches that the world could possibly give us. The fullness of God is, is the knowledge that He's enough. And we rest in the assurance of of his hope. And verse 20 explains that exactly. What I've been trying to to communicate to you. Verses 20 and 21. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He can do more than we can ask. He can do more than we think. According to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in uh, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Verse 20 is epic, and essentially what verse 20 does is it tells us to come to God with a bucket and not a thimble. God raised Jesus from the dead. He can handle our issues. He can handle our prayers. He can handle our anxieties. He can handle our pain. And I know some of you would would say, well, what if he doesn't fill my bucket? He's going to fill your bucket. The problem is is that you have an idea of how that bucket's supposed to be filled, and God has an idea, and his idea of how that bucket's going to be filled is always better than ours. And I've prayed to God before, and I've asked Him to fill my bucket. And I'll look at that bucket and go, you're not filling it. And then six months later, I'll look at that bucket and I'll go, you filled it better than I could have ever imagined or asked for. I just didn't realize it. I didn't have the eyes to see it at that moment. He's going to fill our bucket. And the problem is, is when we give Him the bucket and then tell Him how to fill it is we're trying to be God. We've got to quit trying to be God and let God be God. I will tell you, just personal testimony, I am, I am nowhere rich by the world's standards. But God has totally filled my bucket. I look at my family, and I cannot believe how blessed I am. My wife, my daughters, my parents... It's unbelievable. 30 years ago, if you had told me that I was going to have a family like this, I would have said, you're on crack, man. I'm not interested in that stuff. That is not the route to blessing. God got a hold of my life when I was 27 years old and He flipped all my priorities and gave me new eyes to see the mind of Christ and He's filled my, bu- my bucket with my family. He's also filled my bucket with this church. Every time I think that Arcadia has done something magnificent, God leads you to do something even more. And it's not just Arcadia, it's it's being a part of, of the big R redemption, the seven congregations and everything that we're doing. It's amazing. Even with all the challenges, and every job has challenges, but even with all the challenges, I wouldn't trade this job, I wouldn't trade this church, I wouldn't trade this place. God has filled my bucket. I have friends like I never thought I would have before. God has filled my bucket. God has filled my bucket because I have health. I, I, and I know some of you are like, well, what if he takes the health away from you? You know what? He's going to use that to fill my bucket in a different way. And I know some of you are like, well, that's not even going to be an issue in the future. I just read that essay that said that the person who's going to live to be 150 years old, the first person in the history of the world who's going to live to be 150 years old has already been born. Yeah, it's me. But so what? So I get an extra 60 or 70 years. I'm still going to die. All of us, our health is destined... To degenerate. That's what this world is about. Here you go. Here's how a friend of mine says it. We are all destined to bag, sag, and drag, but God is going to fill our bucket even with that. God has filled my bucket. And then verse 21, it's amazing. Paul says, this is all for the glorification of God. The church, he says, is in the business of glorifying God. One of the challenges we have in in Western culture is the number of churches that have chosen to glorify the people who attend the church rather than to glorify the reason the church exists, which is the head of the body, Jesus Christ himself. Redemption is in the business of glorifying God through his son, Jesus Christ. But here's what's really interesting about that. Here's the best part of it. By privilege in Christ, God uses us in the church for His glorification. It is through us that He is reconciling the world to Himself, and we are a part of that glorification. We just have to get our priorities straight. Paul now transitions into these first six verses of chapter 4 into exhortation, but the result is the same as the prayer. Listen to what he says about a place that's been reconciled and unified and what it's like there. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith. Are you hearing a theme here? One baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says he's a, he starts this section by saying he's a prisoner of the Lord. It's a double entendre of sorts because he is a prisoner in Rome because he's been proclaiming the gospel. He's literally behind bars. But he's also a prisoner of the Lord in the sense that he has given his life to Jesus. And he says, you are my master, you are my Lord, and I will do whatever it is that you call me to do. And the implication is that if we are saved, if we are redeemed, and if we are unified, we are also going to be prisoners of the Lord. And then verse 2 starts to list the characteristics of someone whose bucket will be filled and, and someone who's, who is part of a unified body of Christ. We are humble. And it's interesting, in, in first century Mediterranean culture, just like today, Humility was not seen as a virtue. It was seen as a vice. You were weak if you were humble. People exalt pride as a virtue, but not in the kingdom of God. God says that pride goes before the fall, but He gives grace to the humble. Another characteristic is that we're gentle. That word gentle literally means power under control. We have power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit but it's also controlled by the Holy Spirit. We have power under control. We're also patient, Paul says. Patience, uh, the Greek word for patience is, is a conflation of two Greek words, makros, which means long, and thymos, which means heat, or often related to suffering. So the word translated as patience in Scripture literally means long-suffering. In other words, we endure We bear one another's burdens, and we are eager to maintain unity. And all of those characteristics are distinctly Adventian. I I made up that word to describe something related to Advent. They are Adventian. They're Adventian characteristics and represent a completely alternative narrative to what our world tells us is important. Advent is countercultural. Advent unifies. And then we see in verses 4, 5, and 6, how this is done, and it's done by one word, one. One body, the church, one spirit, the holy, one hope, the second coming, one Lord, the Son, one faith by grace, and one baptism into Christ. So this is a This is a glimpse of what it would be like to live in a place where all things have been reconciled and unified by a Savior who is powerful enough to do that. He created it. He's before all things. And in him all things hold together. And it's the only perfect kingdom that anyone has ever imagined that's actually possible. Because it's possible by the power of Christ, not us. And in this kingdom, Jesus is the king. Here's another exercise we did in the collective. Imagine a kingdom where you would like to live. What would be the attributes of that king? And this is an important question to ask because if you're going to live in a kingdom, you better know what the attributes are of the king because those attributes are going to permeate culture. They always do. They drive culture. And so if we're going to live in a kingdom that we would like to live in, I think we'd want to live in a a kingdom where the king was selfless selfless Philippians chapter 2 Paul writes this do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility consider everyone else better than yourself have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus the king have the same mind as the king we would be he the king would be empathetic Jesus is filled with empathy. I would even go so far as to say not empathy, but interpathy. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet, was, yet is without sin. You and I cannot legitimately say to God, but God, you don't know what it's like to be in my situation. He looks and he says, yeah, I do only worse. The king would be loving. 1 John chapter 3, by this we know love, that he, the king, laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for others. The king would be merciful. We go back to Hebrews chapter 4 for that. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. And the king would be just. Just. Psalm 33 says the Lord loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of his unfailing love. And so in a kingdom such as this that's reconciled and and unified, we're provided with a larger capacity to serve, not a larger capacity to get. In such a kingdom as this, the greatest value would be to know others and to be known, not to use others and be used That's the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. That's the kingdom that He died for. That's the kingdom that He was raised for. And that's the kingdom that He's coming for again. This is the world reconciled and unified by the only one who can do it. It's Jesus. It is the gospel. It is the good news. And and as a result, there's there's a call in our lives to understand how different the gospel really is from everything else that we experience. It's different than religion. Religion is abstain, abstain, abstain. Don't, don't, don't. It's also different from irreligion or licentiousness, which is indulge, indulge, indulge. Do whatever you want. The gospel is enjoy because everything's been redeemed and reconciled and unified. Enjoy, enjoy. So in a world where everything is redeemed and enjoyed, which is exactly what the gospel intends and what the gospel will do, I have one more collective exercise to take us through. Jim asked us to rewrite some headlines as if Christ had fully restored all things. I'm sure you have some that are better than mine, but here are mine. Affordable Health Care Act is repealed. No one is sick. (laughs) Uh, this one should get some clapping Um, congress gets a permanent holiday no laws are needed (laughs) demand for gun permits reaches an all-time low zero now you you gun rights guys just understand I'm not anti-guns I'm pro-Jesus okay church denominations differences melt away Jesus is the new leader Here's one. This is a long one, but it's one of my favorites. Art is valued as much as logic. Logic is valued as much as creativity. And creativity is valued as much as profitability. Arizona Cardinals win the Super Bowl. (laughs) I had to throw that one in there. Here's the last one. Headlines are no longer needed. Jesus reigns. Why wouldn't we long for that? Why wouldn't we hope for that? Why wouldn't we approach Advent as a time to be reminded that He's coming again, that He's already come once, He's done everything He said He was going to do, He's going to do it again. He's going to come and He's going to put all things right. And we're going to be reconciled and redeemed and unified. Let's pray as Jack and Sean come and lead us into our time of, of response and reflection. God, we thank You that You have a Son who's big enough and wide enough to do all of these things. And I pray that You would just... Help us to lean into that and to know it and to place our hope in that and to understand that the gospel is true and is real and that it is the one narrative that we can count on. God, give us eyes to see and a heart to embrace that this is true. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.